Team Heat, 40 here. Now, one of those things I often say, you frequently, or at least just as often as you learn from your friends, right? You learn from your enemies. And there's a left-wing podcast about the right called Know Your Enemy. And it's a lot of uh, very sharp analysis of the right frequently from a left-wing perspective. I found in my life, I frequently learn at least as much from my critics, from my enemies, from people who despise me than, than people who love me. Now, I'm not always in you know, sufficient shape to be able to handle their, their killer insights, all right? Sometimes I, I have to, you know, put up all these layers of defense against these, these painful realities. But uh, I've been listening to the New Yorker Radio Hour and Andrew Morantz, who is their resident writer on the, the far right, Okay, he predicts that uh, Tucker Carlson will be president one day, all right? So this is Andrew Morantz, a lefty, predicting that Tucker Carlson will be president one day. This is uh, David Remnick. He is the left-wing editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, and here he is on the New Yorker Radio Hour talking with two of his writers. decades ago, a modestly talented writer of outsized ego named Tucker Carlson appeared on the scene. He was a bow-tie-wearing conservative. Okay, that's unfair modestly talented i mean the man is tremendously talented right that's just a cheap shot uh new york times today front page tucker carlson's text that alarmed fox leaders it's not how white men fight discovery the text message contributed to a chain of events that ultimately led to tucker carlson's firing so here is tucker carlson's shocking text to a producer january 7th 2021 says a couple of weeks ago he's watching video of people fighting on the street in washington group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid started pounding the living ass out of him. It was three against one, at least, jumping a guy like Obviously, it's not how white men fight. Yet, suddenly, I found myself rooting for the mob against the Antifa man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. Really wanted to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then, somewhere deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being. Much as I despise what he says and does, much as I'm sure I'd hate him personally if I knew him, I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. I should be bothered by it. I should remember that somewhere somebody probably loves this kid and would be crushed if he was killed. I don't care about those things. If I reduce people to their politics, how am I better than he is? And this is supposed to be shocking. This is supposed to show that Tucker Carlson's a bad guy. So Steve Saylor notes, uh, Tucker Carlson was fired for noticing a difference between how on world star hip-hop videos, right, blacks and whites tend to fight differently. So Fox fired Tucker for deploring three Trump supporters attacking one Antifa guy as jumping a guy like that is dishonorable. Obviously, it's not how white men fight. But this is how people talk, right? People talk, you know, that's not how Jews act. That's not how Jews speak, right? I'm a convert to Judaism. This is the community I now know best, Jewish life. And there's there's a famous text in the Jewish tradition that Anyone who is not anyone who is not compassionate, all right, is not a Jew, all right. So there are all sorts of sayings like uh, what a um, you know what a Dallas Cowboy fan does not act this way, or this is not what an oboe player does, or this is not how a journalist should you know, conduct himself, or you know, this is no no behavior fit for a politician or a shock jock or a porn star or a pastor i mean this is just how people talk so if tucker had said this is no behavior for 
uh, an Italian or a, a Pole or an Australian or, I don't know, a Kiwi or uh, a Frenchman or a German man or a Norwegian, all right? There'd be, there'd be no trouble with, with what he said. But just because he used the shorthand that, oh, this is not how white guys fight. Right, Matthew Gertz is releasing the best Tucker Carlson clips on Twitter, but Gertz thinks it is an own of Tucker, so we'll definitely have to check that out. This Product is, uh, that's struggling. Why Megan wouldn't you want Kelly. that in somebody who works for you? Well, now we get more. Now, today, remember last week we told you about the New York Times saying, like in the sixth paragraph, because even the New York Times seemed embarrassed to be doing the Fox News dirty work. Um those references to video the New York Times had obtained of Tucker, in one instance referring to a woman as yummy, circumstances unclear, and in another referring to his postmenopausal audience. It was clearly styled as though this was going to be an insult to women. This is going to be an example of Tucker's misogyny. No context. Where did you get said video? Where could it have come from? We knew it was from Fox. I said that to you last week. Melissa Francis was on said the same. Uh, well, now, oh, shock of all shocks, those videos have shown up on where, wait for it, can you guess? Media Matters for America. It's amazing. They're not even subtle. Fox is losing its its fastball. Um, this is just too obvious, Irina. Again, it's my opinion. This is all being... Irina is the publicist, the chief publicist for Fox News. When you go to contact Fox News... Right, her name shows up, and uh, she's known as a very Kenny, powerful player of the dark arts. At she specializes in destroying the reputations of Fox on-air talent when they are considered by management to be getting too big for their britches. Being leaked by Irina Briganti, who's made it her mission to ruin Tucker Carlson. She hates it when you mention her name on the air. She hates it when her pictures make the air. But she's happy to besmirch yours. She's in the business of ruining your name. Welcome to the club. It doesn't feel very good, does it, Irina, when your name is all over the news as somebody who's possibly doing very disgusting, dirty, dirtball kinds of things. It doesn't feel good. Um, in any event, I'm going to show you the videos because what they think makes Tucker look terrible does nothing of the sort and underscores the absurdity. I just want to point out CNN is not doing any of this crap to Don Lemon. CNN's not doing any of this to Don Lemon. They fired the guy. They're in the middle of a negotiation. As far as I know, it's going the way you would expect. And I think Don Lemon's going to walk away with his paycheck. Uh, Tucker, it's a different situation at Fox where you must be ruined, as I've been telling you. So here's two. I'm going to show you three because there's the third out now of the latest videos that are supposed to divide Tucker's audience from him and make them think he's a dirtbag. We can no longer possibly support him in his new and independent venture or if he goes to Newsmax, etc. Here they are. We'll start with Yummy. You wouldn't? Okay. I'm not, you know what? I'm not qualified on that score, I will say. I thought his girlfriend was kind of yummy. Just kidding. Just kidding. In case this is being pulled off the bird. Yeah, the bird. Hey, media matters for America. Go fuck yourself. That's the first thing I want to say tonight. <laughs> Second thing is, totally kidding. I don't even know what his girlfriend looks like. And if I did, I would not find her yummy. I freaking love that. I love it. He knew, he knew even in the moment that there might be somebody working against him, making sure that the, the camera that's on you during the commercial breaks and whatever gets fed to it uh, 
some nefarious person inside Fox could use it against him. So he had the presence of mind to know who they might leak to and to tell him to fuck right off. Again, sorry, mom. (laughs) Right? It's kind of great. But can I just spend a minute on the New York Times' dishonesty? The New York Times reported that as we've, we've obtained a video of him referring to a woman as yummy. I didn't see in the New York Times the part where he said explicitly, I'm just kidding. I don't even know the person. I don't know what she looks like. Why didn't the New York Times report that? Huh? Where was the context for your smear of Tucker, your attempt to make him look like a misogynistic prick? You buried it in a sixth paragraph, but you didn't have the balls to actually report the context. Media Matters had more balls than you did, New York Times. That was disgusting. The second, about his postmenopausal audience, all of whom have written to me. I'm tell- I know these women. <laughs> um, saying they, they didn't even find what they read so far offensive. And I guarantee you they're not going to find the actual bit offensive either. Nonetheless, here it is. Well, I feel great. You know, I can never I can never assess my appearance. I wait for my postmenopausal fans to weigh in on that. My IFB. What? They want to control me from afar? Okay, I'm putting the leash on. You, you can. <laughs> Fuck it, we'll do it live. I got you, baby. What do you, you see a, a jovial guy cracking jokes on the set? There's not an insult. What's wrong with saying postmenopausal women? I am a premenopausal woman, but in about five or six years, I'll probably be postmenopausal. I wouldn't be offended by that. What does it mean? It means people who are around my age are going to let me know whether I look good. Tucker's no spring chicken. He'd be the first to tell you. I think he's my age exactly. He's, I think, I'm 52, he's 53. Um, so again, no mention of the fact that he's jovial, he's on the set, he's cracking jokes, he's laughing. No, you've got to think that he somehow hates his audience. That's how it was reported initially in the Times with that, without the context there. And now we see the full tape. And by the way, just in case you're who is taping? Ask yourself about my theory that this is Fox News doing it to him, that it's Irina Briganti who sat there calling through his commercial downtime to look for anything that might, if this is all you got, you lost your fastball. This doesn't make him. I can't wait for the tape that absolutely sinks him because this is absurd. So far, you've made Fox Nation look bad. You've made Tucker look good in his ripping on Media Matters for America. And you've made Tucker look good because he's obviously a funny guy who mocks his enemies and makes clear that he understands you might be taping him. <laughs> um, here's edition number three, which was just released today. Um, and this one is. I guess, supposed to make us think he's a pervert. Uh, It's an exchange he's having with Piers Morgan. There's no context to any of this other than it's commercial breaks or wind-ups, you know, before a segment. Uh, That's what's obvious to me as as an anchor. But there's no context, but he's clearly talking to Piers Morgan. And Piers Morgan is having Tucker on Piers' show here. Tucker's doing it from his set. So again, Fox News would have access to the feed. And um, they're joking about, I don't know, you, you listen and draw your own conclusion. Here it is. Everyone in this company is thrilled that you're doing this. I've gotten more calls from people about it. Oh, that's great. Whatever I've got to say, I've, I, when I came to um, New York a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't believe how welcoming and friendly everybody was. It was fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, they, they really mean it from the owners on down. Yeah. Um, it's cool. It's cool to see it. I like that. It's it's a good, you know, people are nice in this company, I think. They've always I completely been nice to me agree anyway. with you. 
I completely agree. Everyone's been very, very friendly and very nice, and I really appreciate it. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on. It's, uh, it's yeah, I bet that doesn't change. Of course. Yeah. It's just great to have you on my show. I mean, I've been on yours enough times. It's great. I think it's totally cool. So let's, um, is, if we're going to talk about sex, I'd love to hit some of the fine points of technique. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but it's your show. It's totally up to you. We can certainly talk about your sexual technique, especially after your tanning testicles last week. <laughs> Not mine. I, we'll speak in more general terms, but I've got something to add. <laughs> Why? Why? Why are they leaking that? It's funny. I don't know what they talked about. We can go back and check his appearance on Piers Morgan, but maybe it did have something to do with some sort of sexual story in the news. I have no idea. Who cares? I don't care. Nothing even remotely offensive in that exchange. Tucker's cracking a joke. How is she so uptight? Is she this uptight that she doesn't realize no one's going to be offended? Like, maybe you need a Valium. Take a seat. Get, take a deep breath and try to understand how real people live their lives, not hyperventilating over dumb jokes on the set between two guys trying to loosen up before a segment that they both hope will be great and fun for the audience at home. By the way, none of that is stuff that Tucker wouldn't say on the air right on the air to his audience. So this is absurd. Fox News should stop this nonsense. And I really need to stop picking on Irina Briganti, Irina Briganti, Irina Briganti, because her bosses are allowing this. Suzanne Scott's allowing this. The Murdochs are allowing this because they want him destroyed. It's not just her fault. They know how to rein her in. They know she's likely the person responsible for this. Maybe they've already greenlit it and they're fully participating. I don't know. This is my supposition. But I will tell you this. I have it on good authority that when I went on Tucker, right after my uh, termination uh, from my my relationship with NBC, um, I went on his set. I sat with him. I gave him an interview. I think it took two blocks, but I was sitting there off the air with Tucker for a bit. And I was told by a reliable source, she taped me then. She taped me. She loathed me because I had to hire that outside PR person after she betrayed the women of Fox News. Uh, during the Roger Ailes era. And as I told you, the Murdochs paid for that. They didn't say, oh no, Irene is great. Oh no, you should work with her. They paid for an outside PR person to help me because I couldn't work with this person. So I come back years later and on, she tapes me on the set. That's what I was told. Love to hear from you, Irina. Let me know. Let me know if I'm off base on all this. I love to have a chat. You can deny it all. Why don't you come on the show? We can have a chat about old times. Uh, because I see you and I see what you guys are doing. And so does Tucker's audience. And it's disgusting. Meanwhile, the, the ratings at eight continue to crater. The, the audience is gone. Um, the only press that they're getting at the eight o'clock hour right now is terrible about how it's doing in the ratings, how the substitutes are doing. Um, so they really, they really have no choice at this point but to go back to Tucker and beg him to come back. And that would require them to fire Irina Briganti, uh, among other things. We'll see. Joining me now, stand-up comedians and political commentators, Keith and Kevin Hodge, also known on YouTube. I suppose we're also supposed to be scandalized about his comment that, you know, white men don't generally fight by ganging up and mobbing somebody, uh, someone the way they were in that video, apparently. Tucker is implying, of course, that non-whites do fight that way. And here he commits the other great sin of the modern era, which is the sin of noticing. 
So Tucker has apparently noticed, noticed out loud, rather than noticing silently like most people do, that in almost every video where multiple people are beating the hell out of a single victim, and there are many videos like this on the internet, unfortunately, and in almost every case of that that we have ever seen, the assailants are not white. Um, that's just a fact. And we have all noticed it, every single person. Any person who read that text message from, from Tucker and pretended to be offended, they know exactly what he's talking about. Anyone who's listening to me right now, Media Matters, probably one of them, is getting ready to clip this exact segment. Um, but they also, they also have noticed it. So they hear that and they go, oh, yeah, sure. But then they pretend, well, but we can't say that. So everyone knows that it's true. Um, what does it mean? What do we make of it? What do we do with the fact that in nearly every video on the internet where gangs of people viciously assault another person, the gangs are comprised of people who are not white? What do we do with that? Well, that's a separate question. We could talk about the whys. But the what, the simple fact, is not really up for debate. It is what it is. It, it just is. That's all. If it makes you uncomfortable, it still is. I'm sorry that it is. I wish it wasn't it, the case, but it is. You might wish that it isn't, but it is. Okay, Matt Walsh speaking some common sense here. So the left, it's interesting how scared they are of a President Tucker. Writing wise-ass profiles of George Bush and Hillary Clinton and the like, but he became... They weren't just wise-ass profiles. They were pretty sharp, pretty smart, pretty profound, and pretty compelling. Over time, the voice of the aging, angry white man. Well, actually, Tucker's demographic is far younger than any other Fox News host. <laughs> I told Luke, go for Tucker's Fox job. He said, bro, I got too many books to read. Voice of white nationalism and extremist politics. I mean, this idea that the Tucker Carlson is the voice of, of white nationalism, it sounds to me like he's the voice of a colorblind attitude to life. Where exactly is his vision? And those most uh, famous quotes from Martin Luther King about judging people on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. I don't see much of a divergence there. Do I think that Tucker will do the classic Tucker cackle when he's president? Great question. Will he do the cackle? I don't think nearly as much. I think he would, he would switch from being primarily an entertainer to someone who's primarily trying to get things done. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he couldn't be worse at running things than, than Donald Trump. So I'm going to say that he'll be more effective as a president than, than Donald Trump. Elliot Blatt says different people have different mayhem styles. They do. I mean, Japanese and Chinese and Koreans, they all fight differently. Australians and New Zealanders and Pakistanis and the English and the French, all right? Different groups fight differently. His audience got so large that Tucker Carlson has been talked about as a presidential candidate, a successor to Donald Trump. Then we saw his emails and his text messages disclosed in Fox's legal battle with Dominion voting systems. Those messages made it plain that Carlson's cynicism is even larger than his ego or his ratings. In private, he actually despised Donald Trump, hated him passionately, he said. He expressed disdain for his bosses at Fox. Okay, so just because you send a text message saying that you hate Donald Trump passionately, that doesn't mean that's the only attitude you have. Guess what? There have even been times where my beloved friend Laponius has annoyed me a tiny little bit. All right, so 
if I, on occasion, on the most rare of occasions, feel a tiny little bit of annoyance for Laponius, that doesn't mean that that is the only emotion I feel towards him. I have a river of love for Laponius. I have a fire hose of love for Laponius. I, I, I want to show Laponius my love in, in a concrete, visceral, direct, but Torah-approved fashion. But we, we all get on each other's nerves, all right? We all you know, get ticked off with each other, right? To, to love someone is to you know, amp up your emotions towards that person so that you will be you know, more, more disposed to hate them, right? The opposite of, of hatred isn't, isn't love. It's just ignoring someone, just being bored by them. So I notice it's particularly a thing on the left that if, if someone says that they hate X, that that must mean the only emotion they've ever felt. I think we have all experienced hatred for our parents. I think almost all of us have experienced love for our parents and disdain and respect and appreciation and callous disregard. I mean, we we experience the whole panoply of emotions uh, on this show. I mean, it's not just about love here. It's about being human. We're all about human flourishing, and that means opening up to you know the whole panoply of, of, of feelings. So just because someone says they hate someone, that doesn't mean that's the only emotion they feel towards them. That doesn't mean that is the primary emotion that they feel towards them. That doesn't mean that is the eternal and everlasting emotion that they feel towards them. Guess what? Different situations produce different emotions, right? If I were under pressure right now, my world would start to shrink and I'd become much more triggered. So one reason that people like to watch YouTube shows and live streams and listen to podcasts as opposed to the conventional news is that the conventional news is kind of stiff and luxury. Now, I unfortunately can get more into lecture mode than you'll even find on NBC News. I, I can be quite the lecturer. I can become you know, quite the, the pompous twit. And the more pressure I feel, the more stiff I get. But when live streams are at their best, when podcasts are at the best, people are loose and talking to you like you're a real human being, not, not lecturing you. So depending on the situation, like if I was like way behind in my bills, I, I probably you know, wouldn't be doing a live stream right now, right? The, the tension, the pressure would kind of you know, get to me and I, I would be tired, I'd be tense, I'd be easily irritated. So if you're in the situation of running late, you'll tend not to be terribly compassionate and loving. You will tend to treat people instrumentally. On the other hand, if you're happy and your basic needs are met, then you're much more likely to treat other people in a positive way. Art Bell says, I think these clips and these texts are being released by Fox and Fox's PR maven to poison the well for Tucker as they pay him to eat bonbons in his home. Okay, let's get a little bit more here from the New Yorker Radio Hour. And talked about women in the most disgusting terms. His behavior hurt Fox. Okay, so I, I used to have... I used to have very close relations with a woman who would employ implore me to f her like a whore. I mean, she was using language about women and objectification and eroticized rage. I mean, terribly demeaning language. All sorts of people use terribly demeaning language. Right? Uh, to be human is to have you know hatred and contempt for people at times, and to have frustrations. Like you know, what man has no frustrations with the opposite sex? Like what man has not been 
humiliated on, on multiple occasions by the opposite sex. Now, what woman has not been, uh, I don't know, denigrated or objectified or treated you know, badly by men? Like, Christians have reasons for feeling negatively about Jews. Jews have reasons for feeling negatively about Christians. Christians and Jews have reasons to feel negatively about Muslims. Uh, parents have reasons to feel negatively about their children. Children have all sorts of reasons to feel negatively about, about their parents. All right, to, to to be human is to have access to this wide range of emotions. And I come from Australia where the C-U-N-T word is not a big deal. So that uh, the, the C word is so bad is a social construction. It's not something that's just uh, inherent in, in the universe. Fox's case with Dominion, and we assume that was a big factor in that enormous financial settlement. No, we we don't need to assume that uh, Tucker was a big factor in that enormous uh, financial settlement. There's not much reason to believe that. Right? I'm not sure why they fired Tucker. I don't think because he sent a text that this is not the way that white men fight. Last week it caused Carlson his perch at 8 p.m. on Fox, and he was fired on Monday. So what does this all mean for Fox News and for the brand of aggrieved right-wing politics that Carlson most effectively championed? Wait, so is left-wing politics aggrieved? Right? Is black politics or Jewish politics, is it ever aggrieved? Or Latino politics or Mexican politics? Is it only you know, right-wing white politics that is aggrieved? To have a any kind of in-group identity, all right, is to be aggrieved. Right? Part of, of what belonging to an in-group means that you are intimately familiar with the history of victimization of your group. Every individual, every group can make a case for victimization. So every nationalism, every strong in-group identity, right, comes with it a sense of victimization. And in certain situations, it's adaptive to have that, you know, sense of victimization turned way up. Most of the time, it's not adaptive to have that sense of victimization turned way up. But it's just inherent in all group identities. You don't think Seventh-day Adventists, blacks, Muslims, gays, the, the transgender, the, the French, the English, the, the Fijians, the, the Norwegians, the, the Russians, the, the Ukrainians, they, they can't all put together a really strong case for why they're victims. You can't put together a really strong case for why you're a victim. I think, you know, we can all do that. I'm joined now by two colleagues who are staff writers here. Andrew Morantz follows politics and the media very closely, and Kelly Fasane wrote about Tucker Carlson in The New Yorker. Okay, about six years ago, you profiled Tucker Carlson. And I want to get a sense from you initially how he got to where he is today. The Father Coughlin of, of the right, of the far right, and a supporter of conspiracy theories and a great deal else. So how did he travel this path? Is it pure cynicism, or did he actually change? I mean, it's, it's amazing. You're right. He did start off as a magazine journalist. He wrote uh, what I think are some pretty great pieces for the Weekly Standard. Uh, he wrote a piece for Talk Magazine, an early profile of George W. Bush, uh, a short-lived venture. And um, from what I understand, David, you're here as the editor of the New Yorker magazine to make an announcement, a hiring that's going to shock the media world. Is that correct? Is Tucker returning to long-form journalism? Yeah. Imagine the tragedy. Imagine the tragedy and the traffic. <laughs> He's, um, so, yes, he has his career as a writer and then sort of semi-accidentally, semi-on-purpose becomes first a figure on TV and then a TV host. He's a host on CNN doing Crossfire, um, and he has this famous confrontation with Jon Stewart who says, you know, you're hurting America. Um, 
He has a short-lived show on PBS. He goes to MSNBC, where he's working uh, for a time with Rachel Maddow, before she was well-known. And he starts working with Fox News. At the time I profiled him, his show was known for confrontation. Um, but as his show evolved, it became less of a site for confrontation, and it became more writerly, really. It, it became more known for what they call the A Block, where he would deliver this long monologue. Um, funnily enough, it was similar in structure sometimes to, to Rachel Maddow. Maddow. Yeah. And doing that, he was able to sort of start to shape this identity. And this identity was a little more or a lot more populist, right? He was going to talk about immigration as a big threat to America. And it was also kind of weird. Tucker Carlson's show, more than anything else on Fox News, it felt like this moment. So are we better off with that uh, John Stewart confrontation with, with Tucker Carlson, all right, that uh, marked the beginning of the end of debate on TV news, all right? I mean, I, I prefer the days when, when left and right would get into good debates. You don't find that nearly as much on TV anymore. You have to go to blood sports to get a good debate going felt like the internet social media age where weird stuff was percolating through to the mainstream. I think that's that's really the, the signature of the Trump era. And he was able to express that on TV. And unlike a lot of his colleagues at Fox News, he made news. He set the agenda. People are wondering, what is Tucker going to be saying tonight? Okay. Now, Andrew Morantz, you've also written quite a lot about Tucker Carlson. And Yes. All right. A lot of people were very interested. What is Tucker Carlson going to say tonight? All right. He was far more influential than just his ratings. Right. So Many people, they'll get a show with huge ratings, but uh, there won't be much imp importance to those ratings. But uh, Tucker had an importance far above and beyond his ratings. A great deal about social media and its intersection with, with television. What danger did Tucker Carlson, in your view, pose to the republic? How do you respond to the notion that he was dangerous? To oh, the I, well, so, that, that, so that's, I think he was dangerous. And so I think one has to hold in one's mind both you know, he's a talented broadcaster, and also he's a kind of rhetorical demagogue. Which is exactly the, the description Dave Chappelle gave of Donald Trump. One can both revel and laugh at that, but, but you know, I think it would be irresponsible to lose track of the fact that clearly uh, Tucker was, you know, he, he, he was constantly, you know, dog whistling is almost too soft a term. I mean, he would say immigrants make our country poorer and dirtier. He would say, you know, he, he one, one more recent thing is that he, he didn't refer to transgender people. He referred to transgenderist people as if this isn't an identity, this is a nefarious ideology, ideology mm -hmm. that's, you know, Trojan horsing its way into our culture. So, I think that one of the things that a very talented demagogue like Tucker Carlson can do is put you on the back foot if you're critiquing him. And Trump is good at this too in a different way of never quite coming out and saying the thing, but coming as close as possible to saying it. So that if you're then in the position of critiquing them, you say, you sound a bit unhinged, right? You sound hysterical. He, he also, and we're talking about him in the past tense, even though I have every inclination to think that there's something ahead for Tucker Carlson, I doubt very much, I think we'd all agree that he's going to disappear somehow. He also had a, an incredible demagogic penchant for using the word you, mm. speaking very, very directly you are being robbed. You are being replaced. You are being taken over. They're robbing masculinity from the American culture. You, you, you. Talk about that kind of rhetorical trick and why it appealed and to whom. Well, I think to older, more conservative, generally white men or white women who wanted to support the patriarchy. I sound like a pearl clutcher making these critiques, right? Um, but it, you know, I think we should say it plainly when he, he, he would use phrases like legacy Americans. Or, you know, we, he, he, he would say that Ilhan Omar is being ungrateful because we saved her from a refugee camp and now she's criticizing our country. Okay, just grammatically, like, what do those things mean? Well, the hell with grammatically, yeah, morally, morally, it's disgusting. But I mean, I, am, I, am I overreacting here? I, I, I think it is clear what he means and it's clearly disgusting. And yet, I don't think that it is entirely reducible to that, which in a way makes it more dangerous because it's not like he just went on air every night and just said, white men, take to the battlements, we must restore our country, right? That would be a boring show. 
And I don't know if it would get him kicked off the air. I would like to hope that it would, but who knows anymore. But he was more sly and subtle than that. So it's not that everything he said was reducible to that, but that was a ringing dog whistle underneath it all that he could have some shred of plausible deniability about, but everyone knew what he meant. And the, the white supremacists clearly knew what he meant. Now, Tucker Carlson, in your view, okay, did he ever believe anything or is he purely an entertainer that's looking for the id of a, of a big listenership and viewership? You know, I, I, I sometimes wonder if he entirely knew, I, you know, at Right, so Tucker's only going to have resonance if what he's saying connects to truth. Uh, a comic is only powerfully funny if what they're saying connects to a truth. So to, to the extent that Tucker connects to real-life concerns of millions of Americans, he's going to resonate. To the extent he doesn't, he won't. At the time, at the dawn of the Trump era, I sometimes thought that he thought of himself as a lawyer, right? In the sense that there was this big community of Trump voters and they didn't have representation on TV and he was going to represent them. He was going to channel them because they deserve, because just like any defendant is entitled to a good lawyer, maybe in his mind, like any political coalition is entitled to a smart advocate on TV and he's going to advocate for those people. (laughs) Yeah, I think. And and then I think over time, you know, most of us don't love living with that kind of cognitive dissonance. And so most of us over time find ways to convince ourselves that the things that we're saying, we really believe in. And so I I think it became more, I I think it became less. So your theory, so he becomes the lawyer, quote unquote, for the great replacement theory and and, and a certain kind of uh, white nationalism, whatever you call it. And then then he begins to embody it, represent it, symbolize it, and he is it. Yeah, and I think in the, in the especially in the social media era, there are these, you know, the way it works often is once you start saying something, then all these people who disagree with you come at you and yell at you about it. And it's really tempting to double down and say, yeah, those people who disagree are terrible. I'm going to say more of this. Okay, for the last year, Andrew's been, when he visits the office, he comes in and the first thing he says is, Tucker Carlson could be president of the United States. He could run and he could possibly win. Andrew, maybe elaborate a little bit on why you do come into my office and start talking about this possibility. Yeah, look. The chair is obviously hugely important. That chair is, is, is the most powerful thing about him. But he's clearly rhetorically skilled. And, and again, to Kay's point, he's clearly weird and in touch with future potential coalitions in a way that Bill O'Reilly is not, and in a way that Megyn Kelly wasn't, in a way that, you know, Laura Ingram isn't. I mean, those people have the old school conservative DNA, but they don't seem to be willing to cast around for the newer, weirder thing in a way that Tucker did, in a way that, frankly, Trump does too, in a way that you could say, why shouldn't we nuke a hurricane? Why shouldn't we buy Greenland? Why shouldn't we, you know, all these weird things that we get used to Trump doing? Tucker was doing that night after night. And so I think that's a big source of his power. I think, arguably, Tucker has been going around giving campaign speech. I mean, he spoke in Iowa in, in, in last year, shortly before the midterms, at the Family Leadership Summit. That You don't just accidentally get on a plane to Iowa, right? He's clearly testing the waters. And when he gives those speeches, I think he's incredibly impressive. Again, impressive in an amoral mercenary way. I find it scary, but I think it's very impressive. He clearly has a touch that, you know, Ron DeSantis doesn't seem to have. Okay, what do you think the future is for Tucker Carlson? Well, I think, you know, one of the mo- one of the things I often think about is the Howard Stern model, right? And Howard Stern proved that you can go from broadcasting on the radio to narrowcasting, in Stern's case, on um, satellite radio. You can be successful. You can maybe make more money and be less influential, be a smaller figure. And I think that that is often the most likely path for people that are very popular and very skilled and they're leaving a big platform. There's a lot of opportunities for Tucker Carlson to go to a smaller platform and make a lot of money mm-hmm. and be really successful, be somewhat influential, but it's still a little bit different from, than being part of the Fox News being blasted into all these homes every night. I think the other interesting question is, what happens to Fox News? Um, on, on the day that it was announced that Tucker was fired, there was precisely one person at Fox News who was willing to joke about it. And that was Greg Gutfeld, mm-hmm. who's a co-host of The Five, which is on some nights, on some days, their most popular show at 5 p.m., also has his own late night show at 11 p.m., which often beats the network late night shows in the ratings. And, you know, there's an argument to be made that now Greg Gutfeld is one of the defining voices of Fox News. And it's a very different sensibility from Tucker's sensibility. It's um, it's snarkier. It's sillier. Um, and, you know, it'd be interesting to see if Fox News is going more in the Gutfeld direction in the post-Carlson era. I just can't. I have to say you and I can civilly disagree about whether is it, whether Tucker's a dangerous authoritarian or, or whatever, but I will never go with you into thinking Greg Gutfeld is funny. I'm sorry. I, I can't go there. <laughs> this is the real question. We're Those are the limits. That's where we set the limits here. <laughs>
Well, well, that leads me to this question. Yes, he's fired. He's gone. Other people have been fired from Fox News. But we're also in the midst of a media revolution that continues to evolve, right? Cable television is declining. Uh, the average age of the Fox News viewer is at uh, it's 70 or around there. Um, clearly, this constellation, this world is changing. We have on the New York Radio Hour today another piece that Claire Malone is providing um, about Candace Owens. And she suggests a new world, a new generation, younger than Tucker Carlson, not white, not male. Now, the economics of this, this universe are, is changing, but it all has to do with audience as well. Could Candace Owens, a young black woman, a conservative, succeed on Fox at 8 o'clock in the same way? What do you think, Kay? Um, I think Candace Owens would have trouble at this moment in Fox News. Uh, Candace Owens is interesting. I mean, she is incredibly brave, incredibly forthright. Uh, his his um, Tucker talking about the... Dominion lawyer. Well, that was a week, I'll say. <laughs> Holy shit. Ten hours. That slimy little motherfucker sitting across from me. Oh, you're the best. And I wasn't talking about you. It's just the opposite. You seem to be a complex. No, I'm not. What do you mean? Because you've never been this affirmed in your life? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, thank you, Alex. Have a happy weekend. See, man, um, the amount, uh, it was so unhealthy, the hate, thank you, Sharisa, the hate that I felt for that guy. I mean, thank you, Todd. I, I, How I could never, you not? I, well, I never feel that way, you know, because I don't put myself, I don't want to feel that way. I think it's wrong. It's bad. It's totally bad for you to feel that way. But that guy, I mean, he triggered the sh- So if uh, Tucker was Jewish, he wouldn't feel so bad about feeling hatred, right? Jews are more at ease with the natural passions, whether they're for love, for fame, for honor, for, for lust, right? Judaism is a religion primarily of action, which allows you to be more open and honest about what's going on in your heart. Uh, Christianity, particularly Protestantism, is a religion of the heart, where if you get angry, you get mad, you get triggered, right? It shows that you haven't truly accepted that Jesus died for you. Shit out of me. Where are you now? Where do you live? <laughs> the amount of times I had, first of all, fuck you on my lips, was like, it was unbelievable. He, suggesting that I was that I was cheating on my taxes? Really? Oh, oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So where, what's, where are you domiciled? Where are you now? Do you own a home there? I was like, no, I do not own a home in Maine, which I don't know. Okay, so it looks like Fox News is you know, leaking all these clips to try to make uh, Tucker look as bad as possible. Right, no, Tucker just stop, got Jesse stop. Waters. The mayor here is complaining about a couple thousand yeah. with more resources than any other city in the entire country? That's ridiculous. Now... I saw on the way into work a illegal immigration family digging through the trash looking for recyclables. How did you know they were illegal? You can tell. And I can tell. I'm a city guy. <laughs> and you don't want me to get into it, but I can tell. And it is the saddest thing to see because they're not able to work here. They came to work, but they're not able to work here. And the point is this. You have to be able to choose the people that come into the country based on needs. If you need this type of person, you need this type of 
bring them in. But to just say, yeah, come everybody in, and then, oops, you know, now people are looking for, you know, a five-cent bottle, that's not right. And you can't blame the guy down in Texas for that. Joe Biden is the common denominator for Okay, those seem like uh, fairly, uh, fairly strong points. Of some behind-the-scenes comments from Carlson have also surfaced since Fox settled its lawsuit with Dominion. Left-leaning group Media Matters posting a video appearing to show Carlson chatting with host Piers Morgan before an interview. If we're going to talk about sex, I'd love to hit some of the fine points of technique. <laughs> Previously, the New York Times reported it had obtained a video of Carlson discussing his, quote, postmenopausal fans and referring to a woman as, quote, yummy. Of some behind-the-scenes comments. So Media Matters is very effective, right? Very effective left-wing organization focusing on, you know, the worst parts of uh, right-wing punditry. How come the right can't pull something together, right, that's just as competent, just as strong as what uh, Media Matters does? Stephen Crowder's wife rant reveals pathetic pattern of abuse he was known to experience Stephen Crowder, known to expose his genitals to staffers. Six said they saw such behavior firsthand. Okay, see if there are any more uh, good, good clips. So I have to ask you about Canada and what we saw happen there last winter, the trucker protests yeah. and then the crackdown by the authoritarian yeah. government of Canada. What what struck you about that? I thought you were going to ask me whether Trudeau is Castro's son, or well, if he you... very much obviously <laughs> is, and I'm completely in favor of a Bay of Pigs operation to liberate that country. I mean, why should we stand back and let our biggest trading partner, the country with which we share the longest border, and actually, I could just say, a great country. I love Canada. I've always loved Canada because of its natural beauty. Why should we let it become Cuba? Like, why why don't we liberate it? We're spending all this money to liberate Ukraine from the Russians. Why are we not sending an armed force north to liberate Canada from Trudeau? And I mean it. Well, I don't know. But that you I, don't have to answer yeah, that. I, I don't know that I'm, I'm, I'm there yet with you. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm just talking myself into I, a frenzy I, here. I, I was pleasant. So I have to ask you about. Look, that was funny. That was funny. And it is worth asking, you know, what can the left and the right learn from, from COVID? Right, there are lessons for the left, and there are lessons for the right. Right, so the left talks about all the lessons that the you know the right needs to learn. So you have a leftist here in New York Magazine, Jonathan Chait, talking about you know how horrible the right was with regard to COVID. Conservatives got COVID extremely wrong. Where is the accountability? Where is the course correction? The answer is they don't exist because the conservative movement is incapable of engaging in them. I think that's a fair critique but you can also ask you know why did the left go so wrong with with covid so the left slipped into bullying people rather than trying to persuade people just like the right republicans try to bully people with regard to abortion rather than trying to persuade them right as, as long as republicans are trying to bully people about abortion they're going to lose out the left tried to force people, everyone to get vaccinated for COVID, right? If you didn't have these mandatory vaccination policies, you would not have had nearly as much, you know, right-wing pushback, all right? So there, there are no solutions, as Thomas Sowell says, all there are, are trade-offs. And so when you 
legislate that is mandated for people in the military or people who go to Harvard or people who work at this or that company to get vaccinated, you are brewing a backlash. And so the left overstepped. The left supported locking down for too long. The left supported you know, closing our schools for too long in many places where the left was in power. Public schools were effectively closed for up to two years, right? That's insane. In states like Florida, right, you know, life started, you know, getting back to, to normal within, within a few months. So I think lots of things where the left and right can, can learn from, from COVID. Now, the right, generally speaking, conservatives were terrible with regard to COVID, right? So uh, Trump would insist that, uh, you know, just a handful of people are going to get, uh, get the coronavirus and uh, not true, right? You had uh, Hoover Institute scholar Richard Epstein predict that COVID would kill just 500 Americans. And he corrects his computational error and revises the prediction to 5,000, right? We're now well over a million. So these right-wing conservative uh, predictions about the number of dead people from COVID are just, you know, way off. Dennis Prager had uh, Michael Fomento on his show four or five times saying that uh, the death toll from COVID will be insignificant. Well, according to the most comprehensive academic survey we have of COVID death, each death took an, on average 16 years of life, and we've had over six, over a million such deaths in the U.S. Uh, Wall Street Journal, March 2020, ran an op-ed arguing that the standard models of the projected COVID death toll were too high by orders of magnitude. Wall Street Journal proposed the actual death toll would be 20,000 or perhaps 40,000. All right, we've got over 20 million dead people in the world. Uh, economist Kevin Hassett created a model that persuaded White House staff that COVID deaths would drop to zero by mid-May 2020. All right, so a lot of people got things really wrong uh, on COVID. Then you had all these quacks pushing hydroxychloroquine, right? And the, the Zelensky protocol, for which there's no evidence. Trump is now running from Operation Watch Speed, which has become a political liability for him. Uh, Ron DeSantis appears with and promotes anti-vaxxers. He recruited an idiosyncratic vaccine skeptic to run his state's health department. Florida is actively against providing COVID-19 vaccines to children. It's the only state to adopt such a position. So, yeah, a lot of nonsense on the right and uh, a lot of nonsense on the left. So you had a very loud faction on the left insisting that it was absolutely correct to call the lab leak hypothesis a racist conspiracy theory so problems on the right problems on the left with regard to covid i don't think we should have an amnesty but we should uh we should learn uh luke tell your sister that you get good sartorial grades since your last trip to australia Media Matters went after Joe Rogan for all his uses of uh, the the N-word. Oh, man. I don't have my stuff queued up. Because, not because she's black, but because she's kind of unpredictable. Um, you know, she's, she's known, you know, partly for her broadcasting, but also for her feuds. I would guess that one thing that Fox News would want in that Tucker Carlson chair is someone who's a little more predictable, a little more loyal, a little less of a loose cannon. So I would think that would be the issue for, Cand for someone like Candace Owen. Andrew? Well, look, I mean, you know, Tucker Carlson was doing almost explicitly a, a kind of white male identity politics on his show. If that chair were to be filled Derated. by Candace Owens she would be doing a different kind of show. But that's not to say that they wouldn't be able to make it work, right? These, these movements, these concepts, these ideologies, they can be pretty flexible, right? So it's not like when you had female anchors on Fox News, you know, the, the patriarchy was over at Fox News or otherwise. And 
Okay, so I remember when I started blogging in 1997 and I became famous in 1998, I, I thought this is the new future of, of news, right? I, I'm cutting edge, right? This is, this is the way forward for news. And obviously it didn't turn out that way. So a lot of people think uh, that they're going to be the, you know, the, the new f future of news, but there, there's not much of a business model for news and there almost never has been with the exception of when they could wrap the news around classified ads, which Google took over. So this is my part in Vice's downfall. A decade ago, as a young war reporter for Vice News, I had the nagging feeling that one day I'd find my wizened older self, like an old NME journalist droning on about punk, reminiscing about the time when we brash millennial upstarts had the world of TV news gathering at our feet. But I never expected it to be so soon. The young get old, and revolutions end up eating their own, and the death of the flagship Vice News Tonight show and drastic downsizing of the Vice News platform just days after the closing of BuzzFeed News heralds the closing of the era when the New York new media giants bestrode the news world like strutting conquerors. With the heavily indebted vice empire reportedly circling on the edge of bankruptcy and struggling to find a buyer, the media landscape of the 2010s already looks like history. As Ben G... So we are subject, if we want, to an absolute fire hose of news. What I think what people really want is not more news and more news outlets. What people want are ways of, you know, understanding and making sense of this fire hose of news that is just, you know, face blasting us, you know, every everywhere we, we look. So people get tired of the stiff, you know, luxury style of, of news. People get tired of the sanitized version of reality that is put out by the mainstream media. Right. So someone who can you know, show the world as it is, is much more likely to, to get an audience. They're going to contribute something of value compared to the sanitized world of uh, normal journalism. So if you can provide, you know, lots of realistic dialogue of how people really talk, if you can provide multiple points of view, if you can write about what's going on inside of people's heads, play, pay close attention to status details. These were Tom Wolfe's keys for compelling writing. If you're loose rather than stiff, if you are sharing rather than lecturing, right? If you're funny rather than pompous, right? There's there's a place for you, right? People need this, right? People get sick of the stiff lecturing world of mainstream news. That's why so many people prefer talk radio to the the polite presentations of news. Also, TV news is the most shallow of any genre of news because the eye is the most superficial organ. Right, uh, the eye, you know, wants eye candy, but uh, thought requires more hard work. Now, I remember back in 1998, I had people trying to connect me to Vice magazine. You know, they thought uh, that I should absolutely be writing for them. And I, I always found Vice distasteful. I can't, you know, remember ever feeling much of a benefit from anything that uh, Vice has, has published. Uh, it, it's it's progressive, you know, left-wing perspective on everything. I just, ugh. Now, I, I'm sure, I'm sure Vice has done some good work, right? I, I just haven't seen it.
I just always found it distasteful. Duda observed, The early 2010s were a moment where BuzzFeed News and Vice News gave you the impression you didn't have to do journalism like the New York Times or the BBC. Them shuttering is telling us, actually, there's only the way they do it at the New York Times and the BBC. Back then, the world looked very different. When the Vice News Channel launched on YouTube in 2014, its parent company's reputation for achingly arch and semi-ironically offensive content, aimed at jaded hipsters, caused legacy broadcasters to scoff at the idea of their cocky, inexperienced journalists challenging them on their own turf. Within months, their laughter stopped. Networks such as the BBC and CNN were now terrified that Vice held the key to the future of news. Vice News went where no one else would go, gaining access to the most difficult stories and throwing itself into the thickest action with studied indifference. Young people who had always been disregarded as news consumers were enraptured by the hard-edged, thrilling content from the worst places on earth, Elderly execs and money men through sponsorship at the company in an... Okay, were you enraptured by Vice News? I don't know any young person, middle-aged person or old person who's been uh, enraptured by, by Vice News. Uh, who's he talking about? Okay, Richard Spencer comments on Tucker Carlson's text. It's not how white men fight. Tucker excelled at race baiting and he was fired for being honest the other shoe was dropped in tucker carlson case really this is a shoe that's dropping the redacted text messages from the dominion lawsuit twisted about for a week of being leaked to the new york times tucker was no doubt fired from fox for a variety of reasons but these text messages are now pitched as the inciting incident or final straw i was expecting racial slurs pornographic images or admissions of drug use instead we get this which i read to you earlier so tucker's words are honest and self-critical. And the line that Tucker's critics seize upon is, it's not how white men fight. Tucker demonstrates that he has a basic sense of what it means to be white, and that this involves honor, decency, and a kind of sportsmanship. So why would we not encourage that for everyone? Black, Latino, Mexican, Korean, right? If you have an identity, right, and you shouldn't only have a religious identity or a values identity or a... Uh, a genre identity or a professional identity all right you should have an identity to a particular people why would you not you know think of your people as pretty cool and having you know certain standards of honor decency and sportsmanship so tucker shows an awareness of the poison of hatred how it leads to sadism and brutality the most remarkable thing about this tucker carlson text is that it was sent as a text message which is usually the domain of typos autocorrects emojis and meaningless chatter here we find instead eloquence and sincerity. So if any kind of proper above-board identitarianism is possible in contemporary America, it'd be found in words like these. I could complain about the hypocrisy. Imagine if the situation were reversed. Would a black journalist be fired if she remarked, that's not how black women should act? The answer is no. This missive is controversial precisely because it is honest, because it is deep, down-to-earth, and self-aware. Tucker has become notorious for his promotion and endorsement of the Great Replacement, but Tucker being Tucker and Fox being Fox, his comments were enveloped in language about voting rights and how black Americans are the real victims. It's not about race, he would say. So Tucker's segments on the Great Replacement were headier than most fair on Fox, but they were not particularly novel. 
Since its inception, the Fair and Balanced channel has regaled its viewers with tales of caravans and knockout games, both of which are dubious as issues of national importance, but potent as forms of race baiting. So with race baiting, racism remains just that, a bait. The ultimate object is for whites to continue voting Republican, to view this as resolving their fears and anxieties and fulfilling their hopes. So at the moment, racism ceases to be a short circuit in the minds of the American majority. It must be censored furiously. So Fox will endlessly tolerate race baiting on its broadcast. The more salacious, the better. But when you're honest and forthwith, however, that is what is verboten. That's a really good point there by Richard Spencer. At least a third of you have at least one child who believes the lie. That if you have separate facilities, separate activities based on race, that is not racist. That is anti-racist. The event titled The Gathering is a special graduation ceremony to acknowledge and celebrate graduating students of color. That's actually the quote, according to The Pitt News. Hmm. University officials said the event, which did not include white participants, is a, quote, chance to build unity. Racial unity is pure racism. Okay, this is Dennis Prager's show yesterday. So these are racially segregated graduation ceremonies in addition to the regular graduation ceremony. So I think it's wonderful if people get together, if in-groups get together, if people connect and bond. So I, I, I've changed my mind. I think these separate race graduation ceremonies, if they provide meaning and happiness to people, I, I think it's great. Like if the monarchy provides meaning and happiness to you, you know, I, I think that's great, right? The, when, when the queen w was sick and dying, millions of the English you know, came together. It, it provided you know, a form of social capital and social bonding and connection, right? So I think these are all good things, whether it's you know, racial graduation ceremonies or having a monarchy. This is Douglas Murray. The king is having a sort of slight austerity coronation, for instance, because it's been deemed by his advisors that to have an awful lot of peers of the realm and dukes all arriving in ermine and so on might not hit the tenor of the times. I happen to totally disagree with that. I think that uh, there should be as much ermine as possible. There should be as many dukes as possible. I think the whole thing should be a spectacular parade and should be an example of what Britain does best. And uh, there will be lots of discussion about the anachronisms and all that sort of thing. But what's the point of having an anachronistic institution if you don't have anachronisms? Um, uh, as for whether or not he's the right man, the truth is that there are several different interpretations of... of, of uh, so if same... You know, same race graduation ceremonies or having having a monarchy brings people joy and brings people together and makes life a little bit more enchanted. Like, how could you be against that? Like, we need I more a romance. about romanticizing your life and it went like this. Live your life like a Studio Ghibli movie where every moment, even seemingly insignificant, is beautiful and charming. Start believing that your morning commute is cute and fun, that every cup of tea is the best you've ever had, and that even the smallest and most mundane things are exciting and new. Because that's when you start truly living. That's when you... Right. What's wrong with people having additional joy and uh, magic in their life? You know, people finding the romantic and the enchanted in, in life, whether it's from a monarchy or you know, a black graduation ceremony or drinking a particular type of tea. You look forward to each and every day. 
I learned that Miyazaki said on numerous occasions that he wants children to know that even when the world seems harsh and life is hard, it is always still worth living, and there is always something beautiful in it. The mental health boost is intentional, and Miyazaki wants us to believe that we should continue to live, even if it's just for those little things. So today, I thought I would give you a look into how I've started to really romanticize my life. All the small and little things that I do to make the most of every day. Now this is beautiful. Yeah, we need more of this. Bring romance, enchantment, the transcendent, the, the divine connection. Bring people together to create a little magic. They're making beautiful videos. When you kiss me, heaven so Right, this is this is gorgeous. King Charles is what I'll call him. Uh, there are, and, and I suppose they, they, they fall into two categories. The first is a perception which has dogged him throughout his life that he's a sort of uh, slightly soggy green do-gooder uh, who talks to his plants and uh, goes on about the environment and, and 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 things like that and and of course interferes in politics that's always dogged him not without some justification because he has certainly been found writing letters to ministers and things like that which in a constitutional monarchy like the uk is is a bit of an intervention in politics of a kind that's not particularly suitable however that interpretation of him has i think hidden uh, a, a much deeper and to my mind more important one which is that he is actually a man of considerable thoughtfulness um he has he's certainly an extremely um kind and decent man he's shown that in his uh, dealings with his own family, testing as that has often been. Um, but the people who know him all attest to this as well. Um, it, it is not the job, of course, of the monarch to do anything really other than to preside uh, beneficently over the progress of politics. And I would just say, that, you know, when when the late Queen died, I, I was in America, in America most of my time these days, and um, I found it very interesting, a number of friends, particularly of the right, who said to me things like, you know, I admire her, I just don't really get it. Like, I don't get what it is about the monarch that that causes such, I mean, at one point I was actually on air and I was talking about the virtues of stoicism that her late majesty em embodied and I could feel my bottom lip wobble and I thought, for God's sake, Douglas, don't cry when you're extolling the virtues of stoicism. <laughs> but, um, but, 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 a, but a number of friends of mine said to me, you know, uh, I don't quite get it. And I found, I, I don't know if it's an original observation, but it was for me that I found, I said to my friends in America, you know, it, it's like the flag if the flag were embodied. You swear allegiance to the flag, it it's what you fight for. It, 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 it's what you face towards. Well, the monarch is like that. Now, of course, Queen Elizabeth II earned that as well by her decades of service. Much of that is passed on to her son, but not all of it. I grew up in a, a monarchist family, although my family's politics ranged from a card-carrying communist uh, to dyed-in-the-wool unionist conservative. Uh, all members of the family, even uh, great-uncle Alfred, the communist, uh, showed great respect uh, for the, the Queen and the, the monarchy as an institution. And I think that's an extraordinarily important point that we have uh, as head of state uh, in the United Kingdom, someone who is above politics and has been above politics now for centuries. Uh, so that, that's that's important. My, my grandfather was really a man of the left, of the moderate left, Labour supporting later a, a liberal, but I can remember how he would always make us on Christmas Day listen uh, to the Queen's uh, address to the nation, and he stood to attention uh, for the national anthem, having served in, in World War II. So that, that set an example uh, to the younger members of the family. There was a play a few years ago called Charles III, uh, which I don't know if you saw it, Douglas, it was rather good. Uh, it was a pastiche Shakespearean tragedy uh, in which uh, Charles uh, ascended to the throne and almost immediately became embroiled in politics uh, over the issue of the freedom of the press and plunged the country almost uh, in a matter of months into a, 
a constitutional crisis. I remember going to see it with another Hoover fellow, George Osborne, who was then Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was booed on the way into and out of the theatre to his great delight. Uh, but, but the play's vision that Charles would actually break the monarchy has uh, stuck in my mind for a while. Because, of course, it's almost impossible for anybody to follow Elizabeth II's extraordinary reign and her amazing judgment uh, when it came to locating the monarchy uh, in the modern world. Uh, and, and Charles will have a, a huge challenge uh, to, to achieve continuity. He can't be exactly the same, and he's not going to be. He's going to get criticised, as he has been really for most of his life, for being uh, somewhat susceptible to modern ideological fashion. And I'm sure uh, the Daily Mail has already run at least four pieces calling him the, the woke monarch. Uh, but, but I sense that what's going on here is pretty much what went on in his mother's reign. They're trying to tweak an, an historic institution to make sure that it doesn't look hopelessly out of touch. And, and, and when, when I hear accusations of wokeism, I think to myself of what my own experience was when I met him and spent some time with him at Sandringham. He's, as Douglas said, a very thoughtful uh, an intellectual individual with considerable emotional uh, depth. One has to remember how brilliantly he navigated a marriage that was really intended for public consumption, not for private use, blew up horribly publicly. Uh, he handled that with extraordinary dexterity. And to me, most impressively, uh, his relationship with his uh, sons when I spent time with him seemed extraordinarily strong, particularly with uh, his elder son. So I'm, I'm not as worried as some people about how this is going to go. And I'll put up with a certain amount of uh, fashion following, because I think that's how the monarchy survived in Britain. If it, had, if it had remained exactly as it was in Victoria's time, or God forbid, in the Hanoverian time, if nothing had changed, it wouldn't be around, I suspect. It's the adaptability that served them so well. I wonder if either of our Yanks on this call would like to take a contrarian view and tell me that maybe the monarchy... Yeah, so, you know, what's wrong with a little more romance, enchantment? I mean, I think this is something that uh, Tucker Carlson would uh, you know, like to to bring back to, to America. You know, I think this is just what we need. You have to start romanticizing your life. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. Because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by. I'm Christina Carone, a well reporter for the New York Times. I think the romanticizing your life trend took off at a really interesting point during the pandemic when people were the most isolated. Lockdowns were really prevalent and people weren't getting to socialize the way they normally do. So people were turning to this notion that even the little things in life can be celebrated it could be something as simple as the sunlight coming through your living room window, even the most mundane things like drinking a cup of tea. So rather than taking the bag of Lipton and dunking it in a microwaved cup of water and getting your day started, doing something a little more special, having a special teacup that you use or maybe a special tea blend. I am more aware of these little glimmers of beauty in life because of my five-year-old daughter. So we'll be walking home from school and she will just stop and become captivated by this beautiful red flower growing on the sidewalk. And it's something I might've just ordinarily walked right by and not really taken much notice of it, but she stops and looks and she gently touches the flower and comments on the color. And that is actually a form of romanticizing your life. And when I stop and notice things and appreciate things with her, it does make anything you're doing a little more special. Here's my article. On YouTube, a filmmaker from Utah soaks in the morning sun, savors a fresh croissant, 
and spritzes lemon-scented perfume on a duvet covered with pink roses. Her videos, a cozy escape into cottagecore, are inspired by Anne of Green Gables, Jane Austen novels, and the period drama Bridgerton, offering tips on how to be happier and appreciate the little things. Elsewhere on TikTok, people spice up their breakfast routines, buy bouquets of flowers, and practice gratitude. One content creator, Rachel Hess, 21, uses a rolling pin to press eucalyptus leaves before hanging them in her shower in a video that has been viewed more than 6.8 million times. Romanticize your life, the caption reads. I want to make even the most mundane of days feel unique because they are what make up the majority of our lives, not the vacations or special events that happen once in a while, said Miss Hess, a student in Pennsylvania. For the last two years, the phrase romanticize your life has emerged on social media as a call to action rising in popularity during some of the grimmest months of the pandemic. It asks us to appreciate what we have right in front of us and to live with intention, no matter how mundane our daily rituals might be. Right, so if, if it adds enchantment and magic and, and joy to your life to have a separate graduation ceremony, like, why get outraged at that? I, I don't agree with Prager here. I, I'd like to understand here, explain why whites cannot have racial unity, but everybody else can. I am opposed to white racial unity, for the record. That's racist. But if black racial unity is good, why isn't white racial unity? So they have you coming and going. Logic and truth don't matter. Victim and oppressor matter. Because all whites are oppressors. Do you know who that damages? It damages white kids. There's no question that it damages society terribly. But do you know who is the greatest victim of this lie? Blacks. You are different, you are separate, and you are a victim. There is no... Okay, so thinking that there's something special about your people doesn't deny that you don't also experience a great deal of commonality and connection with people outside your group. It's just like saying black lives matter. It's not saying that non-black lives don't matter. It's not saying that black lives matter more than non-black lives. Is people in a particular in-group feeling a particular resonance, feeling, you know, on the margins of society. So whether it's people rallying for Black Lives Matter or people rallying for White Lives Matter, people are trying to add some magic into their life. They're trying to add some enchantment. They're trying to add the social goods of, of bonding and high social capital and connection. So... I enjoy Orthodox Judaism. There are regular times I get together with only Orthodox Jews. And it's wonderful. It's invigorating. Now, does that mean I, I feel you know nothing for non-Orthodox Jews or for, for non-Jews? No. But you, you get filled up. You get fed. You get invigorated. You get more of a sense of magic and enchantment when you're with your own kind. And your own kind could be a you know, professional identity, you're a writer, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, or it could be a predisposition, it could be political, it could be racial, it could be national, right? If you can have, you know, some sacred space, right, where you can enjoy being in the dance with your in-group, that's, that's a beautiful thing. So it's not like these black people who had their own separate graduation ceremony didn't attend the regular one. They went to that, and they also enjoyed some hot and heavy 
in group identity. Uh, God bless them, I say. Nothing worse to tell a human being than to believe that he or she is a victim. That's what therapists do. They should be honest and say, see us at X number of dollars per hour so that we can reinforce your victim status. Okay, let's uh, let's say hello to Elliot Blatt. What's going down, bro? Hey, man, you know, I'm sorry to just, I'm sorry to, to, um, uh-oh. Don't be sorry, bro. There's nothing but love here. All right, I'm sorry to interrupt Dennis Prager. I know how much the <laughs> loves him, you know, and I, you know, I feel like they're going to, you know, this is going to be an endurance event for me to get through me, but uh, I'll try to make my Dennis, you know, interlude brief. Um, so I had this thought about Tucker. Okay. So either he's going to run for president, as you speculate, or he's not. And if he is, he has to sort of walk the tightrope, right? The mm-hmm. different people have different gets tightrope. Yeah. The way he's been doing. And yeah. yes, and you know, it's just so very funny, you know, like you pointed out, like we all know, is that this New York Times guy, he knows what Tucker is saying is true. And that's what gets him all hot and bothered, right? And everybody knows. Well, not everybody. There's like this NPR condom over people's heads, right? That doesn't allow them to think through this question to its fullest and come to the correct conclusion. And Hucker has sort of perforated this condom, right? And and then the New York Times people know that he's done this. And And he's ejaculated inside of them. He's not inside of them. Right. Exactly. He will not inside us. Exactly. Exactly. So it's just so funny to hear them squirm about this and they don't realize, you know, what they sound like. I guess that maybe they do. But so here, back to my original point. So either Tucker is going to run for president and he's got to be more politic or he can basically sacrifice himself and start talking, frankly, sort of in the manner that Scott Adams has and let the chips fall where they may and he'll probably be you know completely vilified by the process but it would be an act of service you know to sort of break open the conversation what do you think yeah i i don't see scott adams as a as a good model because scott adams what he said was unnecessarily ugly all right there needs to be a a better model. I think Steve Saylor is a better model. uh, Charles Barkley is a better model. Uh, The late Reggie White's a better model. Just appreciating that different people have different gifts, create different kinds of communities, uh, commit different levels of of mayhem, right? We we don't have to do it in an ugly way, which is is what Scott Adams did, you know, saying that, uh, well, if this is true, you know, because of this one survey, then people should have nothing to do with, you know, non-blacks should have nothing to do do with blacks. That's a, that's an ugly thing to say. It's not, I, I would not like to see that. I would like to see a conversation that helps people get along better and more effectively in the world rather than, you know, infuriating people. I, I do too, but... <clears throat> 
there's like a, you know, I hate, and I always use this metaphor wherever I'm talking to you, but I always use the medical, the Rubicon uh, metaphor. Um, eventually someone will have to cross this Rubicon. So why not Tucker? Why not somebody with his incredible, you know, popularity? Um, just put it on the table, put the cards on the table. And he doesn't have to be necessary. He doesn't have to take necessarily the approach Scott Adams took, but people dance around this issue and Tucker dances around this issue and the New York times people know he's dancing around the issue, but why, why, why dance? Why not just state it plainly and directly say it loud and, and proud, loud and proud, bro. Without because it's never a good idea to say things that people can't hear. So just like in your personal life, if you've, you know, you've got a friend who's making a lot of bad decisions. If you criticize the friend, you know, if you, let's say your friend gets married and you tell him, look, bro, your wife's really ugly, right? That's not doing your friend or you any favors. Oh yeah. I don't expect Tucker to survive this. That's what I'm saying. It would be a sacrifice. But right? it's not a good but sacrifice. He's, he's like telling your friend that he, he can... married an ugly woman, that's a sacrifice, but it's an unnecessary one. Well, I may disagree. I may disagree there because someone needs to make a sacrifice, right? Well, well plenty because of otherwise... people have. I mean, Nathan Kaufness has spoken out. The Kaufness has spoken. Oh, right. And his millions of followers. Or how many people actually pay attention to Mike Tucker Carlson? I, I pay attention to Nathan Kaufman. He's got thousands of followers on Twitter, bro. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying if Tucker... Okay, what do you think the actual likelihood is that Tucker could run and be elected? Uh, 10%, maybe 15 Okay. So those are long odds. It's like one in nine, right? Yeah. So don't don't you think he'd? I mean, he's not going to change people's perception of Ukraine war, right? Because that is decided by those decisions are made at, at the Defense Department, right? Whatever you're thinking, whatever you think about Ukraine, the decision to go to Ukraine is meant. It's a national security decision. Whether you agree with it or whether you don't, you have no impact on it. Right? But he could make, I mean, if he could broaden the conversation on uh, the different people, different gifts question, I think he would make a service. It would be a good service. But yes, he would be completely destroying his reputation and prospects but does he need his reputation or prospects he's well, got the money that he needs to live comfortably does he not yeah but wh why should he again why should he say things that people aren't prepared to hear uh, that's it's not just well, if who, you're speaking who, who publicly it's not just good people? enough to who say you, the truth your average you, american your average american would have his life damaged by talking out publicly too much about different people have different gifts. But eventually the conversation needs to be had, 
right? Well, there is, is conversation about it, but it's it's furtive. Everyone yeah. talks about it, but it's furtive. Well, right, but it, what's it, okay? So the the options are eventually it's going to have to be discussed frankly and not furtively. So the options are to sort of let this thing simmer forever or to just rip the Band-Aid off and then let the chips fall where they may. Don't you think it would be better? I mean, obviously, it would no, be more dramatic. I, I don't think, uh, no, I, I don't think it, it would be better because most people aren't, aren't there yet. And so just like you could say the exact same thing one year and be universally condemned and, you know, ridden, driven out of town, and you say the exact same thing three years later, and you're acclaimed. So it's not just enough to say the truth. You also have to be able to say it in ways that people can hear, and it has to be appropriate for the moment. So uh, God forbid there's another 9-11, right? That's not, that's not the time to necessarily start talking different people have different gifts. That's the time to talk about, you know, we fellow Americans, we were attacked, and, you know, let's, let's rally together. So th there are situations where if you're getting, you know, different life outcomes in among different groups, right, it may not just be, you know, white supremacy that's causing it. So in that conversation, you know, recognizing different people have different gifts, th that's an important addition. But um, th there's the man and there's the moment. And the man has to choose the correct moment or the moment can permanently damage the man. Fair enough. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm not pretending this is an easy thing or it's an easy decision, or you know, I'm just hypothesizing for the sake of argument. Yeah. But oh, so hold on, my audio. Your audio is great, bro. Don't don't diss. No, no, my hair. So not to go into gory details, but my headphones, the cable on my headphones is very squirrely, and it has to be in the exact position. If I knock it out, I can't hear you. Now I can hear you. Um, okay, yeah, I was just speaking hypothetically, but you sort of have, okay, so let me give you an example of an event that happened to me personally at Costco. Do you mind if I, would you indulge please, me in a small story? Please. Okay, so going to Costco, you ever been to Costco, Luke, or is, is... Yeah, I, I'm sure I have, I just don't remember it okay um it's this giant warehouse store. it's totally disgusting but at the same time there's good deals there and it's they, america, and they, bro it's the real america yeah and so the uh my posture is horrible moral outreach process uh profit notices something amazingly intuitively okay so i go there i go to costco and you have to understand it's this giant cavernous warehouse, right? And the lanes, the aisles in the store are incredibly wide, right? And people <laughs> have these oversized carts that they push through these aisles, these oversized aisles throughout Costco, right? And this is generally accepted that you just, when you're in such a situation, you obey the rules of the road. So you stay on the right and one, your traffic stays on the right. The opposing traffic stays on the left and everybody, uh, you know, life goes on. Everybody gets by, everyone gets where they need to be without any stress or, or friction. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm, I'm there. I'm in the aisles. And that's also in part two that you have to understand about Costco is they always have these like sample giveaways where it's like some product they're trying to promote and they give you a small sample and a little, uh, like a teeny little paper plate. And so you, you're supposed to eat the sample and then be enticed to buy them. And these things, you know, and it's ridiculously embarrassing to watch, but people will stand in line just to get like a quarter ounce of food, you know, yeah. for free because it's free and solely because it's free, right? It's just so, it's just so undignified, but nevertheless, people do it, right? And so, all right, so I'm going down the aisle. So that's the back, that's the background that you need to know to sort of contextualize what's about to happen. So I'm in, I'm going through my aisle, right? And there's a couple of like Lizzo-sized Wakandans in mobility scooters. They just stopped in the middle of the aisle, right? And they parked their um, mobility scooters in such a way that they managed to block both lanes of traffic. So they created a traffic jam within this within Costco, right? Within this lane. And I happened to be the one where I was next to go, but I couldn't go because there was this traffic jam. And like I'm I'm watching this. And so they're talking to this Japanese woman who's working at Costco and she has a face mask. And so neither party could speak English in any respectable, understandable way in the way that you and I are speaking, right? It was this weird, just sort of semi-grammatical, weird sort of ebonics and then Japanese English. And what they were trying, she was trying to say is, could you go back to the sample thing and get my mother another sample, right? <laughs> and like, it was just like, so inappropriate, like so out of place. And neither one of these two could, could understand one another, right? And they're just blocking traffic. And it's like, okay, five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Like, then for 30 seconds, my head, my the veins are bul just bulging out of my head. Like, I cannot stand this situation. Everything about it sucks. Everything about it. And so I decided to take matters into my own range. And I just sort of take my cart and I make this violent action with my cart. I twist my cart to the left-hand side to sort of evade one of these uh, mobility scooters. And I did this and everybody watching just kind of winces and, you know, they just kind of stand back and they're like shocked and outraged because just the, you know, obviously my head, my face must've been beat red, right? But I, I'd made this violent action of, of lurching to the left to try and evade this. Right. And, and I didn't care because at this point I was like so like mad and just enraged and like red faced and steaming. Everyone was just like terrified of me. Right. And then one of the mobility scooter women says, like, if he hits me, I'm going to sue him. <laughs> if he hits me. Right. That's that was the first thing. That's the first place where her, her mind went was that. You know, this is a potential lawsuit, and she was like getting ready for it, you know. But all I did is I just jerked myself to the left and I made this sort of S turn, carving my way through the two mobility scooters and getting where I needed to be, right? I just take an action in this sort of, you know, Caesar esque sort of manner, right? 
Mm-hmm. And um, and then I got where I need to go, right? But just the reaction, just a this this absurdity of this situation. This never would have happened. Like just the the level of indignity that and the 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 the, the, the uh, unawareness that these people were showing to other people as if their needs had mattered. You know, they were blocking two lanes of traffic, and everybody was just stymied about what to do until I took action, right? I was the leader in the situation. And so that's what Tucker needs to do, man. He's got to take his Costco cart and just lurch to the left and then lurch to the right and not care what people say. What do you think? Okay, so uh, one part of me thinks that you weren't served by getting so angry at the situation and taking violent action. The other part of me thinks that this apparently is a case where your anger did serve you because it gave you the strength to resolve the situation so you weren't just sitting there. So I'm kind of torn between those two reactions. So one reaction is uh, surely there's more a, a more calm and adaptive reaction to this sort of frustration, which is just endemic to uh, you know living life with, with other people. They're frequently going to frustrate you. On the other hand, your anger gave you the strength to resolve the situation, to get out of that frustrating situation. And as long as you're able to pull it off without doing any harm to yourself and to others, then it's a beautiful thing. So I've got two minds about what you just talked about. Yeah, and I have two minds too, because, you know, ideally I like the, the former case, right? The, the calm, reflective, patient, cultivated approach to the situation. But that's just not me, bro. You know, I just, I felt so authentic in the moment, dude. I just felt great doing it. I just Wait, you should feel react- great when you resolve a problem and you refuse to be a hostage. Now, if you escalate a problem unnecessarily, then you'd feel bad. Like if you did hit the woman and say you got arrested, you would feel bad. So you were competent. Yeah. You you excelled. You resolved a situation. You're effective. Well, I had guardrails because I knew how far I was willing to go and how far I wasn't. But I had a very simple, honorable objective, which was just to get past the shit show, right? And mm-hmm. get on to what I wanted to do. I didn't want to hurt anybody, but I didn't want to be polite either. I just thought the time for politeness had passed. And that's where I'm getting to. Yeah, that's the analogy I'm trying to draw with Tucker. Yeah, so you have to you have to choose your moment. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you you look at these scenes, and obviously, you know, I know the the perils of looking at Twitter and seeing all these horror stories that you see. But you know, there's this one particular clip in Oakland where you see sort of a group gang pummeling this one older white dude. Um, yeah, I saw that. It's this- horrifying. Yeah. So if this stuff wasn't checked, it's going to continue, right? And so, what's the, the? I think the most important question is: What's the most effective way to check it? That's what what matters. Like, if midnight basketball is the most effective way to check this, then I support midnight basketball. More midnight basketball. If that is the most effective way, right? Whatever that, works. I, you know, I, I support just locking up super predators for, for longer. That's that's my instinctive reaction, but I am open to anything that works. 
Right, but I, I, I think, and here's the point I'm trying to make. So I'm trying to be politic here. Um, so certain style of rhetoric that puts the onus of responsibility on the, let's say, traditional Americans, you know, the, what's the word? Legacy Americans? Legacy Americans. Right. So, and legacy Americans have been very acquiescent in accepting this responsibility. And they really shouldn't have. And they don't realize, in my opinion, what this will lead to. Because if they, if they, if they, if their reaction to, acts of violence by non-legacy Americans is to self-flagellate, right? They're going to continue because the violent perpetrators are going to think, well, we just need to act out even more strongly. We need to behave even more badly because there's no pushback coming from the side of decency. Right. So, yeah, I support strong law enforcement and locking people away who engage in this horrific behavior. But I, I don't notice that many uh, legacy Americans or white Americans engaging in flagellation to the extent that they do, they enjoy it. So, like, who are we to lecture masochists that they should not enjoy the the masochism and the sense of spiritual elevation that they get from flagellating themselves like some people you know wear a hair shirt or some people beat themselves and then some people you know beat themselves rhetorically because of white racism but it, there is a need in much of humanity for self-flagellation so who are we to deny them you know this exquisite pleasure yeah it's very uh libertarian of you i guess i don't know well, I, I think we're, you know, I think you and I are, most of us, we just kind of play the odds in situations. And we think, well, this is unlikely to happen to me. So why should I make a fuss? Why should I make myself a target? Right? And so we need leaders such as in the position, in position of strength and power, who can put up a fuss and take, take the slings, slings and arrows. Right. For all of Republican weaknesses and problems, Republicans are more likely to fund the police and to support stronger law enforcement and uh, lengthier prison sentences for people who commit violent crime than Democrats. Yeah. And so, all right. So part two. So I'm listening to Richard Spencer still masochistically because I don't know what's happening. He's just become more and more boring. And, um, so he's predicting like a Democrat landslide. Yeah, he thinks he thinks that the Republicans are cooked. You know, primarily because of this abortion stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, and if that's the case, you know, I, it just seems the future seems grim to me. Because okay. I think more of these people are going to feel empowered. Right? There's. Like you have people talking about reparations in San Francisco at the city council level as if it's a plausible and realistic thing to do, right? Granted, they're nutters, but people are just going to keep asking for more and they're not going to get it. 
And because they don't contribute to society, they're going to remain marginalized. And so they're going to ratchet up the violence. Okay, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to run off. Um, so right. let's let's right. Later, continue bro. this another time. Okay, shalom. Okay, take All care. Right. Bye.